Recovery Elevator, episode 34. My wife was about six months pregnant, and I'm just at my absolute worst. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app, I have been sober for 13 months. The guest on today's podcast is O. O has his own podcast called The Share Podcast. That's where I get the HP baby, the higher power baby that I've referenced in the last couple podcasts, and I will continue to reference from podcasts here on out. Thanks for that HP, O. Our topic for today is myth versus reality. Myth and realities regarding alcohol, of course. But before we get into our podcast topic of the day, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. All right, Recovery Elevator, let's get into some myth and realities. Are you ready to debunk the shit out of some myths about alcohol? Because I am. Separating myth from reality is not an easy task. Myth is, in fact, reality for a lot of people. To suggest another reality exists is to turn some of these people's worlds upside down. But if the truth about alcoholism is ever to be understood, then the myths must be attacked and destroyed. Only facts can destroy myths. Before we move forward to this topic, let's just get a baseline for what a myth and a fact is. I'll give a couple examples. Myths could be the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, and did you know it's a myth that bananas grow on trees? They don't. The stems of the plant that they grow in, although they look like trees, don't contain the woody tissue necessary to be classified as a tree. Wow. Now let's look into some facts. Here's some facts that really just can't be denied. Number one, long pants, they're long. Number two, the sky is usually a shade of blue. Number three, third eye blind was started in 1993 in San Francisco. All three facts that really can't be denied. Another fact, well, probably going to be a fact, is that the Denver Broncos, they're probably going to win the Super Bowl this year. So I'm just going to put my stamp of fact approval on that one. Myth number one, here we go. Alcohol is predominantly a sedative or depressant drug. Here is the reality. Alcohol's pharmacological effects change with the amount drunk. In small quantities, alcohol is a stimulant. In large quantities, alcohol acts as a sedative. In all amounts, however, alcohol provides a rich and potent source of calories and energy. Hmm. When large quantities are consumed, alcohol can act as a sedative. That would definitely explain why a friend of mine named Paul E. decided to take a nap in the pool at Las Vegas at our fantasy football draft. I'm talking like head underwater decided to take a nap. Yep, I, being the sober guy, had to take him back to his hotel room pretty quickly after that. Next myth. Alcohol has the same chemical and psychological effect on everyone who drinks it. Here's the reality. Alcohol, like every other food we take into our bodies, affects different people in different ways. I guess that makes sense. Here's an example with foods. When I eat peanut butter, my face gets fat. When my brother eats peanut butter, he goes to the emergency room. Two slight discrepancies and two different outcomes when two people are eating the same thing. Here's our next myth. Alcohol is an addictive drug and everyone who drinks long and hard enough will become addicted. Here is the reality. Alcohol is a selectively addictive drug. It is addictive for only a minority of its users, namely alcoholics. Myself, my hand is raising right now. Most people can drink occasionally, daily, even heavily without becoming addicted to alcohol. Others, alcoholics, my hand is still raised, will become addicted no matter how much they drink. And that is the consensus of a lot of the stuff and research and literature that I read. However, when I did a DUI course in Livingston, Montana in January, their method or pedagogy, shall we say, was to say that everybody had the potential makeup to become an alcoholic, but their thresholds were different. And I asked a couple questions that, to tell you the truth, the teacher just couldn't answer. But he was basically saying that everybody could be an alcoholic if they drink enough alcohol, but other people have higher thresholds and lower thresholds, et cetera, et cetera. That's the only time I've heard that. 
majority of the time I've heard what I just read with reality that there are a lot of heavy drinkers out there and some people can drink their entire lives heavily and they never become an alcoholic. Damn those long genes of genetics. Here's our next myth. Alcohol is harmful and poisonous to the alcoholic. Reality, alcohol is a normalizing agent and the best medicine for the pain it creates, giving the alcoholic energy, stimulation, and relief from the pain of withdrawal. Its harmful and poisonous after effects are most evident when the alcoholic stops drinking. Yeah, that is quite the pickle to really understand. The effects of alcohol are most dangerous and perilous after we stop drinking. That reiterates the stat that I read once that a lot of the suicides due to alcoholics, they commit suicide when they're sober, not when they're drunk. And I had always thought it would be opposite, but it kind of makes sense. When we drink alcohol, the pain, the suffering, it goes away. But when we stop drinking, when we try to sober up, that's when it's so unbearable. That permanent solution of suicide seems like the best idea. Here's our next myth. Addiction to alcohol is often psychological. Reality, addiction to alcohol is primarily physiological. Alcoholics become addicted because their bodies are physiologically incapable of processing alcohol normally. A couple podcasts ago, I go into how I, when I started drinking, that I couldn't stop drinking and why that happens. Basically, alcoholics, their body, starting with their stomach and then the liver, they break down alcohol differently than normies. And then there's a substance called THIQ, which is an acronym of something that I don't even want to try to pronounce on this podcast right now. But that THIQ stores in the brain. It gets stored after heavy bouts of drinking in the brain for an alcoholic. If you have the genetic makeup to become an alcoholic, you will develop this THIQ. Normies, they never develop THIQ in the brain. But after large amounts of THIQ are stored, aggregated, it becomes a problem. That is the progressive part of this disease as more of this THIQ gets deposited in parts of the brain. Myth. People become alcoholics because they have psychological or emotional problems which they try to relieve by drinking. Here's the reality. Alcoholics have the same psychological and emotional problems as everyone else before they start drinking. These problems are aggravated, however, by their addiction to alcohol. Alcoholism undermines and weakens the alcoholic's ability to cope with the normal problems of living. Furthermore, the alcoholic's emotions become inflamed both when he drinks excessively and when he stops drinking. Thus, when he or she is drinking and when he is abstinent, he will feel angry, fearful, and depressed in exaggerated degrees. This basically sums up why being an alcoholic is so effing hard. We all get speeding tickets. We all face the same struggles as normies. We still got to pay rent. We got to pay mortgages. Life happens to us also. Our favorite bands, like Third Eye Blind, they eventually break up. We also go through rainy days. However, the difference is we cope with this stuff a little differently. Oh yeah, and on top of that fender bender we got to deal with insurance companies to fix, we also have a drinking problem, which makes everything so effing hard. Here's my next myth. All sorts of social problems, marriage problems, a death in the family, job stress may cause alcoholism. See where this is going real quick. Here's the reality. As with psychological and emotional problems, alcoholics experience all the social pressures everyone else does. Hence what I just said. But their ability to cope is undermined by the disease and the problems get worse. Here's the problem or problem number 762 of an alcoholic. We don't cope with our problems. We simply push them aside or you can think of we just step on them and squash them, but they don't go away. The whole sitting and feeling the emotions part is an idea that we just simply don't like. We hate the thought of digesting and processing our painful emotions, whether it be from childhood or feelings that are happening right now. That's something we just don't do, or at least I didn't do. Something crappy would happen. You bet your ass I wasn't going to feel those emotions. I was going to drink, but the emotions, they're always still there. And now in 13 months of sobriety, I'm still feeling a lot of those emotions. Because you got to feel them. That's the only way you're going to get over them or get through them. And when you're going through hell with these emotions, here's an idea. Don't stop. And sometimes it seems like there's light at the end of the tunnel. But when you get to the end of the tunnel, you find out it's a train. You get your ass handed to you again, but you just got to keep going. Here's a myth. When the alcoholic is drinking, he reveals his true personality. Here's the reality. Alcohol's effect on the brain causes severe psychological and emotional distortion 
of the normal personality. Sobriety reveals the alcoholic's true personality. I agree with this one to some extent. However, I would never hit a woman. I don't think I would ever steal. I thought about it. Like I said, I contemplated going to a liquor store after 2 a.m. when they stopped selling alcohol. But there's a lot of things I would still never do and I'm drunk. And I've heard stories about people who do these things where they're drunk. But then when they're sober, they also have a lot of the same character defects. I don't know. I've driven drunk and I've blamed a lot of things on alcohol. But I don't really see like, oh, I beat my wife because I was drunk. That to me is not a get out of jail free card. My two cents, which is not a fact. (laughs) Back to the topic. Here's a myth. The fact that alcoholics often continue to be depressed, anxious, irritable, and unhappy after they stop drinking is evidence that their disease is caused by psychological problems. Reality, alcoholics who continue to be depressed, anxious, irritable, and unhappy after they stop drinking are actually suffering from a phenomenon called the protracted withdrawal syndrome. The physical damage caused by years of excessive drinking has not been completely reversed. They are, in fact, still sick and in need of more effective therapy. That's just the whole restless and irritable and content line wrapped up in a nice ball for you there. One crushing blow to an alcoholic and hit myself pretty hard was when I heard, you know you're an alcoholic that when you quit drinking, your life doesn't get better. That holds true to a lot of people, and a lot of those people are also in need of more effective therapy in addition to a 12-step program, in addition to absence of alcohol. But that was a cursing blow when I first heard that, was your life does not get better after you quit drinking, which is true because you're just a dry drunk in some formats. For some people who perhaps aren't in desperate need of that more effective therapy, their life will get significantly better after they quit drinking. But again, simply quitting drinking, that's the dry drunk phenomena. You're only addressing the physical component, not the psychological and the spiritual component. Myth. Here we go. If people would only drink responsibly, they would not become alcoholics. Here's the reality. Many responsible drinkers become alcoholics. Then, because it is the nature of the disease, not the person, they begin to drink irresponsibly. Everybody made that choice. I made that choice when I was 13, to drink. But for some of us, that choice progresses into something we don't even know we're facing. It's called alcoholism. All right, next myth. An alcoholic has to want to be helped. Reality. Most drinking alcoholics do not want to be helped. Yeah, I concur with that. They are sick, unable to think rationally, and incapable of giving up alcohol by themselves. Most recovered alcoholics were forced into treatment against their will. Self-motivation usually occurs within treatment, not before. Yeah, I'm like 50-50 on this reality, air quotes. A lot of people get forced into treatment, and some people, while they're at treatment, they're like, whoa, I really was effing up my life and everybody else around me. But for most people, you got to want to quit on your own. Myth. Some alcoholics can learn to drink normally and can continue to drink with no ill effects as long as they limit the amount. Here's the reality. Cover your ears if you're not really ready to quit drinking. I'm going to call these beer muffs. Here's the reality. Alcoholics can never safely return to drinking because drinking in any amount will sooner or later reactivate their addiction. After two and a half years of sobriety, I decided to drink. This was in 2012. I decided to take a couple shots at the bar and then go home and have a nightcap. Well, after consuming everything in the household, I found myself at 2.30 or 3 a.m. in the morning after the liquor stores, gas stations have closed, Googling rubbing alcohol and hydrogen peroxide. To the left of my computer screen was a large bottle of rubbing alcohol. To the right was a large bottle of hydrogen peroxide. I was Googling to find out which one would cause the least amount of bodily harm to my body when ingested. I found out You could still get high on the rubbing alcohol thing. However, it was very detrimental. So it was tough. I passed. Next myth. Psychotherapy can help many alcoholics achieve sobriety through self-understanding. Here's the reality. Psychotherapy diverts attention from the physical causes of the disease, compounds the alcoholic's guilt and shame, and aggravates rather than alleviates his problems. Talk about your all-time backfires with that one. Here's the next one. Here's the myth. Craving for alcohol can be offset by eating high sugar foods. Reality, foods with high sugar content will increase the alcoholic's depression, irritability, and tension and intensify his desire for a drink to relieve these symptoms. I've heard chocolate in the first month is okay, whatnot, or always have chocolate on hand for cravings. Sugar is a downward spiral as well. 
I have had alcoholic behavior with Reese's Pieces. One time I bought the small size for like 80 cents, drive out of the parking lot, drive a quarter of a mile, do a U-turn, go right back, get the family size of Reese's Pieces. Man, I love my sugar. The next day, I've got a hangover, and it feels really similar to a hangover from drinking. Here's my next myth. If alcoholics eat three balanced meals a day, their nutritional problems will eventually correct themselves. I'm actually going to go with the drinking alcoholic on this. Reality, alcoholics' nutritional needs are only partially met by a balanced diet. They also need vitamin and mineral supplements to correct any deficiencies to maintain nutritional balances. The drinking alcoholic, people often misportray this stigma or stereotype of having a big beer belly and gut. A lot of times alcoholics are so deprived in nutrition that they're skinny. They're not receiving the right amount of calories, minerals, and all that healthy stuff that you need to maintain a healthy body weight. So when you are in early sobriety, it's a great thing to get a dietitian on your team or at least read some literature about how to get your body physically back into the best shape. That's with vitamins, that's with minerals, all that good stuff. And my last myth today is tranquilizers and sedatives are sometimes useful in treating alcoholics. Reality, tranquilizers and sedatives are useful only during the acute withdrawal period. Beyond that, these substitute drugs are destructive and in many cases deadly for alcoholics. This would be stuff like benzodiazepines and other tranquilizers such as Xanax, Alprazolam, Diazepam, things like that. They're helpful for somebody to get sober, but after that, it's basically alcohol on a pill. And a lot of people relapse after they experiment with Xanax. Man, I love debunking the shit out of some of those hideous myths regarding alcoholism. So now let's get to the interview section of the podcast. Oh, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Paul. How are you, brother? I am also fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from where? Costa Rica. Yeah, there we go. They have they have a slogan. What is it like? Hang loose or something like pure something wildlife? What is it? Pura vida. Oh, it means pure life. I'd say it, man, but I just can't say it right. So You did it right, you know, just about five minutes ago. <laughs> Pura vida, yes. I'm sitting here right now with a gecko and a monkey. There we go, and I got my poodle Ben with me up here in Montana. All right, <laughs> we're a, ready. And there's a buffalo outside the window. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Recovery Elevator, you guys are in for a treat today. Omar, oh as he likes to be called, is my new official launch accountability partner. Oh, I didn't run that by you before, but that's what you are to me because we both launched our podcast. Oh has a podcast called Sharing Helps Addicts in Recovery, or SHARE. It's an acronym that he created, and it stands for sharing, so S, sharing, H, helps, A, addicts in recovery. So Sharing Helps Addicts in recovery. And I could not agree more. So, oh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, brother. Yes. And let's get right into this. Oh, how long have you been sober? Okay. So my anniversary date is May 26, 2003. And I just celebrated 12 years clean. Congratulations. Oh, that is fantastic. And everybody, we basically have the Gandalf of sobriety. Oh, on our show today. <laughs> No, to tell you the truth, like I, when I heard your podcast in February, I was intimidated because I'm like, oh, man, I, I'm going to start a podcast on recovery. And I've been sober for five months. For one, I don't know what the F I'm talking about. And, and there's this guy, oh, doing the same thing. Like, And here, here we are. This is the magic of recovery because it's part of his program, too. I've got this beacon, the consummate sobriety man talking to me right here on my podcast. So this is so cool. I'm so glad to have you here. Oh. Well, thank you for that unbelievable introduction. And, you know, I got to tell my ego to go step outside for a moment because it just puffed up here with all the, uh, <laughs> with all the acclaim here. So, you know, leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's get into the questions, man. And um, let's reference the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. When did you decide to quit drinking and to quit using. Talk to me about your elevator. How bad did it get? And when did you get off or when did you decide to get off 12 years ago? Well, you know, it was bad. Okay. I mean, I was doing 
a tremendous amount of cocaine, smoking weed, and drinking alcohol every single day. You know, I mean, I went from a weekend warrior when I lived in the United States. I'm from California originally. And when I moved to Costa Rica, all bets were off. I mean, from the moment I got here, it, I was introduced to cocaine for the first time when I moved to Costa Rica. And, you know, I never looked back once I, once I did that for the first time. And so over the next three and a half years, almost four years, I literally hit a rock bottom that, you know, it's very similar to the one you shared, you know, your story where, you know, I was doing, again, cocaine, smoking weed, popping pills. It was just, I was just this chemist that was constantly trying to figure out how to find that right mixture so that I could be, you know, I was chasing a high and I could just never find it, you know, towards the end. And so, so what happened was, is I'm, I'm married. And at the time I was married, I was married and uh, my, my wife was about six months pregnant and I'm just at my absolute worst. And what happened was I had I'd gone to Canada for a convention to go meet up with uh, some potential business partners. And I made such an ass of myself that by the time I came back from that trip, my partners had locked me out of, out of the uh, office. Basically, they said, you need to go to rehab. You're not coming back here. You know, we'll take care of, you know, the, your payroll and all that stuff. We're going to put you into, into rehab, but you're done. You're, you're a complete disaster. And I remember that at the moment when they were trying to find the right rehab for me, all right, it took a couple of weeks before they could, we could figure out where I was going to go. So there was a time lapse for me. And in that sort of interim, I had gone out what I was considering my one last night out sure. before I went to rehab. And I did so much blow. I did. I just was just like on such a tear, and my heart was just racing. It was just. It was beating so hard that I just. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, you know. So I. I, I get home like at three o'clock in the morning. My wife's asleep, and I go to the bar. And I just grab a bottle of whiskey and I just start guzzling this bottle of whiskey. I'm just trying to come down. I'm trying to come down. And it's not working. And I grab my bong and I'm smoking weed and smoking weed. And I'm, I'm, I go into the, the medicine cabinet. I grab some Tylenol PM. So I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to kill myself. But, I mean, with the massive amounts of drugs that I'm doing to try and taper down from all the blow, you know, it, it, it was a, it's a miracle that I didn't kill myself. But at some point, at, at some point in that moment when I was right in the middle of trying to come down and I couldn't, I just, there was this carving of the last supper that was behind my bar. Huh. And I remember putting the bar there kind of like as a, as a sacrilege, you know, towards religion, right? I, I wanted, there was, I rented this house and it came with this carving of the last supper on the wall. So you couldn't take it down. So I just put the bar right in front of it. And I remember, like, as I'm trying to guzzle down all this whiskey, I looked at this, this carving of the Last Supper, and I just had this, like, white light moment. It was, one of my, it was one of my aha moments. I didn't recognize it at the time, but I just remember I actually got down on my knees, and I looked at this thing, and I said, I don't know who you are, what you are, God, the devil. I don't know what I'm praying to right now, and I don't care because I... I can't do this anymore, all right? I am not a good husband. I'm not going to be a good father. I can't run a business. I can't stop using, and I can't get high anymore. Just take me out of this world or help me get clean. And I just kept smoking, kept drinking, kept popping pills, and at some point, I just wished for death. And like you... I woke up the next morning and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm still alive. And it was this split second that we would talk about. There's that moment of clarity. There's just this, this, this little epiphany that comes up. And I had remembered that eight months prior to that, I had been to a therapist. And the therapist had told me, listen, I can't help you. You're a drug addict. You need to go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And I blew it off then, but that's what I thought about at that moment. And I jumped out of bed, grabbed some clothes on the floor, 
jumped into my car, drove to the therapist's office, and I said, I need help. Can you help me? And he looked at me, and I almost saw his eyes start to water up. And I just remember him going, I'm so glad you're back. He drew me a map to how to get to the Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And that was my first meeting in NA, October 5th, 2002. Now, that's not my recovery. That's not my clean date. But when I walked into that room for the first time and I heard them speak their story and speak their truth, I knew that, you know what, I didn't die last night, but I also remembered that I asked if you either take me out of this world or help me get clean. And I knew that if I kept coming to these meetings that I was going to get clean. And that was it. That was my bottom of the elevator story. Man, guzzling whiskey. Talking my language there, but then the marijuana and the copious amounts of cocaine and upper and a downer. I was I was right there, right there next to you and just grabbing my heart being, gosh, that sounds brutal. So so what what was it like, you know, in October after that? Did you did you stop after your first couple NA meetings or how much longer were you still, you know, you're with your HP, but how much longer did it take to get sober? Well, the first when I first got into recovery, it was like I was addicted to it. I loved it. I still love it. You know, I love being an addict. I love going to meetings. Um, I love recovery my whole life. And, and I just, I grabbed onto it the same way I grabbed onto the drugs. I mean, cold turkey, I stopped doing coke, weed, booze, everything. I grabbed a phone list from the guys that were there. I started calling them. I got a sponsor. I bought the literature. I started, you know, working the steps. And I basically, I substituted all the drugs and alcohol for recovery. And what happened was that, you know, I was trying to get my wife back at the same time. And at this point, she, she'd just been, she just had enough, right? So she'd already kicked me out of the house. And I'm figuring, well, as long as I'm staying clean and as long as I'm doing this deal, man, I'm going to get her back. So my motives were not pure. My motives were not about me getting sober because I needed to be, I needed to stop this insanity, it was because I wanted to get her back, you know. And then about five months into going to meetings, I remember I wasn't gaining any, any leverage there. And so I found out that she had a friend and I didn't know about this, right? And I found out that he was actually probably a little bit more than a friend. Uh-oh. And I didn't have the, the coping skills at that moment. And I didn't have the recovery in my back pocket like like I probably do today. And when I say I have it in my back pocket, it means I work a very vigilant, rigorous program. And what I should have done is called my sponsor, gone to a meeting, shared about it, asked for help. And I didn't. I ate it. I just, I was so angry and, and so like I felt so betrayed like, how could she do this to me, right? Like, I hadn't been fucking up her entire life for the last three years, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I had completely forgotten that the hell that I had put this woman through, right? But here, it's all about me. And I'm like, how could this happen? And blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to a meeting. And if I still want to use after I go to this meeting, then I'm going to go and pick up. And, you know, I went. I sat in the meeting. I didn't say a word. And as soon as I left that meeting... I, I went, I picked up two bottles of Johnny Walker Red, all right? And we're talking the 7.5 liter bottles. Okay. Right? I picked up two of those, went back to my house, poured myself one of those big giant water glasses of just whiskey and ice. And within 15 minutes of that, I was in my car with that giant glass of whiskey going downtown to pick up some blow. And then it was just a f- just for the next two months, I was just on a tear. And I remember in between this time, I was like stopping and going to meetings and then saying that I was dirty and picking up a white chip and then going back out. And I did, you know, I must have picked up, I don't know, maybe seven white chips in the course of those two months. And I just, I couldn't stop using and I couldn't stop going to the meetings, which I don't understand even today, but I'm so grateful that, you know, my, my compass just kept pushing me back into the meetings. 
And um, I was able to kind of hide a lot of this from, from my wife because we weren't living together. And so my, my, other, my other bottom, my other aha moment was when I had gone on a four-day run. She hadn't heard from me. My daughter was about a month old at the time. And I hear a knock. Uh, I hear a ring at the doorbell at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I go to the window, right? And I'm peeking out the window like, you know, like the degenerate drug addict that I am. Because I'm like, who would be ringing my doorbell at 9 o'clock in the morning? And I look downstairs and I can see my wife and I see her holding my, my 30-day-old baby girl. Oh, man. Brother, just e- incomprehensible demoralization. I had reached the bottom of all bottoms. You know, I looked out that window and all I could see was how disgusting and miserable I was. And I, I went to the phone and I'm like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I have, you've been gone for like four days. What are you doing? And I go, I'm busy. Oh, you're busy. It, am and, I hearing this right? Did you miss the birth of, of, of your son or your daughter? No, no. As a matter of fact, you know, I kind of fast forwarded to my relapse. But the thing was, I was able to be there clean and sober. All right. Because I relapsed at five months. I had four months when she was born. Okay. So I, I had some clean time. I was coming up on six months and she was born. And I remember, you know, it's funny, but I, you know, I was in the, I was in the hospital. I did the whole deal, even though we were separated, even though all the shit was going on between us. You know, I was at the hospital. I was there for the birth and she had a C-section. So she went to sleep right? Like she knocked out right after the, the operation. And I got an opportunity to sit with my daughter all night. I, oh, I got man. to hold her all night in my arms, man. And I just remember just staring at her and crying and going, God, your dad's a fucking drug addict, man. Like, dude, like this sucks. And I just yeah. remember while I was holding her, just going, God, and I'm in the, you know, I've been going to meetings up to this point. So I'm just like, God, help me. God, help me. I, God, please help me stay clean and sober for her. You know, I want her to be proud of me, right? And so fast forward to that moment where I had relapsed and I'm looking out the window and I'm looking at this little tiny creature that is my daughter and thinking about being in that, you know, hospital room in that waiting room, holding her in my arms and going, Dude, everything that you like wanted to do, you're just blowing it, man. Yeah. And I dropped down to my knees and I said, God, I fucking get it, man. I just, I totally get it, man. I get it. I get it. I got this, man. This is, I, I never want to feel like this ever again in my life. And I was, there was nothing that I was more certain in, in that moment. There was nothing that I was more certain of in my life that I did not want to repeat where I was at and what I was feeling at that very time and at that very moment. And I had to watch her walk away up the street, her shaking her head, holding my daughter. And I can still remember what they were wearing, what my apartment looked like, right? It's, it's burned in my mind forever. I'll never forget that bottom of all bottoms, man. And buddy, after that happened, I went, I changed sponsors, and I said, I am willing to go to any length. Tell me what I need to do, and I will do it. And I stopped asking questions, and I stopped asking why or, or how or whatever. I just said, what do you want me to do, and I will do it. I want to talk to you about a term or a theme that has been very important in my own recovery, and that is accountability. And it sounds like even though you had a newborn baby girl in your lap, you know, you're saying, you're saying, dear God, please help me. Daddy is an earmuffs fucker, you know, like ear, earmuffs off. And <laughs> like, even though she really can't even comprehend those words, be oh. it Spanish or English, that, you know, you're, you're still creating somewhat of accountability, right? Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I wanted it. You know, it wasn't that I didn't want it. And I guess that's the biggest takeaway from, you know, as far as newcomers is concerned, you know, I'm yeah, sure. I got 12 years now, but that was, it's one day at a time and it's a daily reprieve based on my spiritual condition. And as soon as I came into the fellowship, that was one thing that was very clear to me that 
if I did not establish a relationship with a higher power, and if I did not plug myself and connect myself with the program, that I wasn't going to make it. So I knew that that was the way that I was going to be able to hold myself accountable. And I also, I also use my daughter as my way of holding myself accountable. But the, the disease is so powerful. It's so cunning, baffling, and powerful that no matter what your intentions are, if you are not spiritually prepared and you do not have all of your relapse prevention tools at your disposal, no matter what is going on and no matter how bad you want it, you will go back out. I agree 100% with that. And, and let's talk about that higher power. When I first started my podcast, I was checking out your, 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 your website, which we'll talk about in a bit. And I was talking about this and I saw the HP and I'm like, man, if I want to have a kick-ass podcast and stay sober, I'm going to need to have all Hewlett Packard stuff. So I went out and I got a printer. <laughs> I, I got all the Hewlett Packard gear, but what it really turns out to be is a higher power, right? I, I kept my receipts, but seriously, Omar, talk to me about how important it is to having a higher power if you want to stay sober. For me, and you know, I've said this in a few of, you know, when I was sharing my story and for my, my 12 year anniversary, you know, when I closed up, it was like, for me, every question I can answer with God. There is just, for me today, even though when I first came into the rooms, the whole concept of God was just riddled and wrapped around this whole idea and concept of religion. And so religion had tainted me and kind of distanced me from having a relationship with my higher power, which today I call God. All right. Now, I always say HP baby because it's something that when I first came into the rooms, instead of saying thank you, God, or, you know, adopting the God principle, for me, I could wrap my head around the idea of a power greater than myself, that higher power. And I remember when, you know, the first time I had this epiphany, you know, and I realized that I had lost the urge to use, it was one of those moments where I was like, HP, baby. That's where I, I immediately gave the credit where I needed to give the credit to. It wasn't because I was somebody special. It wasn't because I had found a way to stay sober. It was because I had connected myself to the rooms and I connected myself to a higher power that I prayed to every single day. I'd get up every morning and I would pray, God, just give me one more day clean. And when I'd go to come home at night, I'd get on my knees and I'd say, God, thank you for another day clean and sober. And I did this every single day for like six months. And that's because I wanted to get high every single day for six months. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But four days had gone by and yeah. I had gotten on my knees. And something was just bugging me like something's not right, like something's missing. And I go, man, I haven't prayed in like three or four days. And I go, oh, my God, the obsession to use has been lifted. Huh. Brother, I got to tell you. There has never been a moment in my life where like tears of joy, like I remember going to the meeting and going, guys, I had it. I had that spiritual awakening, man, like <laughs> HP, baby, man. I didn't have an urge to use in like four days. <laughs> I remember everybody laughing, you know, yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like, look at this guy, you know, yeah. but that was, you know, when I knew that I was not alone. And that absolutely, without my higher power, I couldn't have done it. Yeah, recovery Elevator, you guys heard it here first. I will continue to use the phrase HP, baby, if that's okay with you, O. Absolutely. Yeah, I will quote you on it, though, O, from the Share podcast. I, I love it. HP, baby. I'm going to continue to say that because I, too, had some reservations on being like, you know, it was my God. It was my higher power. Because I tell you what, my higher power a lot of times takes the place of wind blowing between pine trees and the forest in Montana. It's it's just it's there. But that's what it is. It, I guess so. HP baby, I love it. I love it. And and oh, I am curious on this. So you have got twelve years of sobriety. Take your time with this question. Walk me through a day in the life of O. From Costa Rica, not from Costa Rica, but in San Jose, Costa Rica. 
All right. Well, if I'm going to take my time, it's it's more like a week because <laughs> okay, yeah, it, do it, yeah, yeah, because I go to the gym three days a week, and I love what you talk about too, as far as you know, if I'm eating right and I'm exercising and I'm keeping my body healthy. All right, that it's it's also very key with recovery. And to be honest with you, ever since I got married, all right, for the you know I've been married now for a year and a half. Okay. And my wife is thin. She's a yoga instructor and she's in amazing shape. And for me, like the minute I got married, it was like no gym, you know, <laughs> eating whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, but you, you got like plantains, rice, and beans that come with Dude, your dishes. Like you, you can't seriously. get that off that. Dude, brother, <laughs> you, it, it's so easy to fall off the path. True. All right. <laughs> So, so what, I'm, what I try and do on a regular basis is at least get to the gym three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, all right? And then, of course, get to the office and do whatever it is I got to do in the office. Uh, a lot of time gets spent on the podcast, either doing interviews or doing editing. And then what I have as far as my meetings go is like usually on, on Mondays and Fridays, there's an 8 a.m. AA meeting like literally two blocks from my office, okay? So I will hit the gym, after the gym, hit the meeting, and then boom, I'm in the office. So right from go, I'm already like jacked up, ready for my day. And then on Tuesdays and Thursday nights is the nights I go to my NA meetings, and those are at 7 o'clock at the Vigilance Group, and that's probably about 15 minutes from my office. And these are all English-speaking meetings. So for me... There is definitely at least three meetings a week that I will go to, depending on what my schedule's like, trying to hit the gym, trying to hit, eat right. And like I say, I'm trying here. All right. I'm not going to, you know, I've, I've seen you and, and Shane, like from, from that sober guy, you guys are like in shape. You know what I mean? Like I was like, dude, I got to get in shape. Look at these guys, man. We lift heavy logs in Montana. Dude, I'm, you know, I might have to go to Montana, you know what I mean? Cold weather and lifting logs. And like you were saying, you know, it's like I'm going to the beach. Trust me, I, I, I'm not going to the beach. There's no beach body here. <laughs> so, but I, and, and so again, and then on the weekends, I have my daughter, I have my wife, I got the family time. That's very important, man. I, 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 you know, this weekend I took off with my wife and we just took Friday night, stayed overnight at a bed and breakfast, reconnected. You know, it's so important for me today to keep a balance in my life between work, recovery, and my family because all of these things are vital. Always remembering that number one has to be my recovery and my relationship with God. I love how you said the balance in my life. Can you expand just a little bit more on that? Because right now, my I, I'm real. I've been struggling with the balance in my life. With there's so much work. When do I fit recovery in? Of course, that's why I got the podcast. But I told you it's been like four or five. It's actually been more than a week since my last meeting, and you're like, Ugh, let's get that <laughs> fixed. Coach me up. Oh, talk to me about balance. Well, the th- just like anything else, routine and schedule is key. Trust me, if I did not actually schedule the gym, I would not go. Hmm. I don't want to go, all right? I don't want to do the gym. So the night before I go, I pack my bag for the gym, okay? That's a 95% guaranteed I'm going to go to the gym. And if I don't pack my bag, it's about a 95% chance I'm not going. And I recognize that about myself. So I, in my schedule, it's like, okay, well, here's the days I'm going to go to the gym. And it's only three days. Anybody can commit to three days. It's not like, okay, well, I want to get ripped. All right. So I'm going to go five days a week and I'm going to take these classes and then I'm going to cut my meals to this. No. Here's what I'm going to commit to. Here's three meetings done. All right. So I've got my gym on the schedule. Number two. My meetings. Which meetings am I going to commit to? Can I commit to one meeting? Can I commit to two meetings? If I can commit to two meetings or three meetings, then great. But I'm, I'm never going to set myself up to fail. So I'm going to go ahead and go, okay, well, I can definitely make these two meetings on Mondays and Fridays for sure because they're right after the gym. All right. And the Saturday morning meeting is usually pretty easy because it's at nine in the morning. So there, I pretty much got my three meetings under control. I got to go to the office. There, you, I'm, you can attest to this. When it comes to making money, we always show up for that, all right? So 
Go to the office. That That is an absolute. I don't even have to think about that one. So I've already programmed my gym. I've already programmed my meetings. And now I just need to make sure that I program time for my family. And Saturdays are all about my family. That's it. I don't do podcast interviews. I don't go to the office. You know, I don't do anything. But I might hit the 9 o'clock meeting in the morning. And then the rest of the time is for my family. And that's basically, that's like the, the foundation of the schedule so that I don't overwhelm myself. If I, want to th- if I can throw extra stuff, like an extra meeting, an extra day at the gym, whatever, that's fine. But I'm not going to commit to anything that might put me in a situation where if, I don't, if I'm not able to maintain this schedule, I might just say, fuck it. I'm not doing anything. Love it. Love it. I was fiercely scribbling notes through all that, but you're right. The balance is key. The routine, that's the word that I wrote down and underlined twice. Before we get to the rapid fire round, O, talk to us about how we can find the Share podcast. How do I find you on Facebook and Twitter and things like that? Okay, so it's actually very easy because the Share podcast, even though it's spelled S-H-A-I-R, I also have the URL S-H-A-R-E. So The Share Podcast will also take you to The Share Podcast. 301 Redirect. I like it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And then on iTunes, if you go to iTunes, you can pretty much type in addiction, recovery, pretty much almost any recovery-related term, or just put in S-H-A-I-R, and The Share Podcast will pop up on iTunes. And you can also find me on Stitcher Radio. Facebook, there's the Facebook group. Just type in Sharing Helps Addicts in Recovery. You'll find the fan page. You'll find the group. And I'm also trying to build the group up too. All right. It's a private group just for addicts and alcoholics. So I'm, I'm always looking for people to join up. Just type in Sharing Helps Addicts in Recovery and the group will pop up. I love it. We have reached the rapid fire round. Oh, are you ready to answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds? I was born ready. Yes, sir. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking or drugging? Oh, man, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I'm already blowing this one. (laughs) There's too many, man. Involve a Costa Rican animal, please. (laughs) Okay. I'd taken mushrooms for the first time. Loved it. Had the best time ever. A week later, my buddies are like, hey, let's do that again. I'm like, I'm all in. This time I did double the amount that I did the first time because I figured if I did double the amount this time, I was going to have double the fun. What I had was double the hallucinations. I could not come off this fucking ride, man. Like I was just crazy. The walls were moving. People had like two heads. All right. I was either in complete, utter horror and terror Or I was laughing so uncontrollably hard that I I couldn't stop laughing and my gut was hurting. And I actually got to a point where I was like, how do I stop laughing? That had to have been one. And basically somebody just said, quit drinking the orange juice, man. (laughs) You know, I I don't know if you've ever done mushrooms, but the thing is, when when you drink orange juice with it, it just keeps keeps kicking up the high, right? So somebody just said, Quit drinking the OJO. (laughs) (laughs) So I stopped drinking the OJ. I sat in the fucking backyard for like three hours waiting for the thing to go down. Never did mushrooms again in my life. Wow. Number two, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan in recovery, simple. To keep doing the share podcast, to keep carrying the message, to keep going to meetings, to keep my recovery number one in my life so that I'm always connected with my higher power and I'm always ready with my arsenal of relapse tools. I'm going to ask the same question you asked me. Oh, what is your favorite book in recovery? Probably Chuck C's A New Pair of Glasses. That book is old, all right? And it's also one of the books that... You know, I, I was given to me along with the big book when I first started reading the big book. And it's just, it's written in such a basic language that anybody can understand. And, and Chuck's story, anybody can relate to it. It's, it's absolutely my favorite, one of my favorite books. Number four, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Stick with the winners. You know, stay in the middle of the herd. All right. Don't wander off, man. If you're firmly planted in the middle of the herd, you're not going to get eaten by the 
the lions, the, the addiction lion on the outside. You know, it's so important when you're in early recovery to not do this alone. You know, go to meetings, stick with the winners, don't hang out with newcomers. All right, that's, that's the advice that was given to me. Love it. What parting piece of guidance, O, can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? Listen, give yourself 90 meetings in 90 days. Just go to meetings. One of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to find that you are in the right place and that this is where you need to be, or we'll gladly refund your misery at the end of the 90 days. I love it. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. And this is me creating accountability right now. I'm going to come hang out with you in Costa Rica one time. We're doing it. San Jose. Dude, you're staying with me. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator Podcast, though. Thanks for having me, brother. It's been a blast. Absolutely. You might be an alcoholic if, yes, back by popular demand, By your request, this segment, similar to the Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if, you might be an alcoholic if segment is back. And I'm going to say thank you to Nikki, who has taken over the task of supplying me with these five you might be an alcoholic if lines each week. Number one, this one comes from Eric. You might be an alcoholic if you still hide liquor bottles in your house, even when you're living alone. Number two. You might be an alcoholic if, instead of asking everybody for aspirin at your friend's wedding, you ask people for tequila, blaming the headache was caused because the margaritas were too sweet. And that's from a random girl at a wedding. That one is actually a wedding that Nikki and I attended. We heard the girl say that, and we both looked at each other and were like, whoa, that girl's an alcoholic. Number three, you might be an alcoholic if surely by your third DUI, you still don't question if you have a problem. Thanks for that one, Missy. Number four, this one's from Adam. You might be an alcoholic if at any point you jump out of a moving car, take off running, and end up in a dusty wash, and it's 100 degrees outside just because you don't want to go to detox. I want to hear more of that story, Adam. Last one. You might be an alcoholic if you wake up on someone's junky, trashy sofa they set out on Hollywood Boulevard. Thanks for that one, Mike. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you are thinking you might have a drinking problem, reach out. That doesn't necessarily mean you're an alcoholic. Like our Facebook page. Join the Recovery Elevator private Facebook group. It's growing like a weed, and it is an amazing resource for myself personally in recovery. I got 13 months. All of it's worked for me. You got to listen to the similarities and not the differences. Send us your sober selfies. Gosh, there are some good-looking alcoholics out there, and you need to be proud because this social stigma of the whole alcoholic thing, it's killing me, and we're going to break it down. Send us your sober selfie. That would be a picture of you. Simply in the subject line, email it to info at recoveryelevator.com. In the subject line, say, say your name and how long you've been sober. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up.